ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. We're not going to see speedy results with these young people. We're not going to be able to flick a switch and all of a sudden a young person goes from stealing a car one night to being an active citizen the next day. It does take time. The resources and funding doesn't keep up with demand. And when we think about what needs to change for youth crime going forward, we need to start earlier than where we're getting these young people now. And that's the Ipswich Community Youth Service CEO speaking this morning on AM. And when we think about youth crime prevention, it's a term that we hear a lot. But what does youth crime prevention really look like? Because the fact is, youth crime is complicated and there are big questions. And the questions are things like, why? Why are young people breaking the law? Are they disengaged from school? What is home life like? If there is drug and alcohol use, then why? They're big and they're complex questions where the answers can often run over generations. So when we hear that we need to invest more in youth crime prevention... Where do you start? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warrnambool. Daniel, all around Australia, police are trying all different sorts of techniques to try and tackle youth crime. In Queensland, for example, police are wearing civilian clothes and driving unmarked cars in a bid to try and connect with young people. But to the other extreme we just saw last week, there were calls for Victorian police officers to carry metal detectors to be able to scan young people on the street for knives. Mm. But as we'll hear today, it's going to take more than just police and police on the street to tackle youth crime and youth crime prevention. And many are saying we need to start with youth workers. Mm, Yeah, good morning, Rochelle. This is a really tricky conversation to have because it's also something that some people can find hard to talk about without having a really visceral and emotional reaction. So first of all, we know that here in Victoria, youth crime is an issue and it's one on the rise. The latest crime stats show that burglaries by offenders aged 10 to 14 almost doubled last year and that youth offenders between 10 and 17 are more likely to commit robberies than any other group in Victoria. But, you know, the flip side of this, this is something we're going to hear about and hear from our experts later in the show, is that supports and programs for these young people are also on the slide. So we've got an escalating rate of youth crime Mm. and at the same time, the funding that goes towards this group, the community services, is on the decline. In many ways, something like this is hard to talk about because, as you said, a word like youth crime is hard to truly grasp and understand it's something that's kicked around a bit like a political football when you get to you know election times which can make it harder to actually truly understand and get a handle on what can be done in a concrete manner to make growing change and i wonder if perhaps even as a side element that growing politicization Mm -hmm. of the word and the way that we look at jobs like youth workers is that politicisation actually changing the popularity of that job in the first place? And I wonder whether when we throw the term youth worker around, mm-hmm. whether we actually really know 
what that role, what that job entails, the skill that's involved and how they can truly connect with a young person. But then you still have to somehow find a way to get that youth worker out and being a part of the community. And this is not just an issue for the city. This is an issue for all of Victoria and the regions and rural parts of our state as well. And I don't know about you, Daniel Miles, but when I was growing up, Every second person I knew wanted to be a youth worker and many of Mm. them still work in the area. And I grew up in the Latrobe Valley. It was a very popular job and, and vocation for a lot of people. And I just wonder whether or not it's an area, a profession that people are thinking about, that people Mm. think it's an area for them. How do we promote it in particular to people from non-English speaking backgrounds so that you can Mm -hmm. have peer-to-peer support workers as well? So the importance of youth workers when it comes to youth crime prevention. Are you a youth worker? Maybe you've had contact with one. Maybe when you were growing up, they were a bit of a lifeline for you. How do youth workers help? And if they're a big part of youth crime prevention, how do we ensure that we are having more people train in the role of being a youth worker? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warnable. We're looking at youth crime prevention and the role of youth workers today. And we have a cast of thousands in the studio joining you to talk about this really important topic. Please welcome Derm Ryan. He's the acting CEO of the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria. Melissa Hardham, who is the CEO of West Justice, which is a human and community, a human rights and a community legal centre in the western suburbs. Carmel Guerra, OAM, is the director and chief executive officer for Multicultural Youth. And also Ray Jackson, who's the general manager of community services at YSAS, which is the Youth Support and Advocacy Service. A warm welcome to all of you. Derm, let's start with you. You're a youth worker, a trained youth worker. You've been in this field, in particular in regional and rural Victoria, for a long time. What does a youth worker do? Um, Being a youth worker is about developing and building an independent relationship with young people. Standard uh, is about the ages 12 to 25, And you might be engaged in a set of activities that are around uh, upskilling young people, um, helping them with their development so that they're able to achieve their goals. Importantly, you're not a teacher and you're not a parent. So there are a range of skills that you might need to bring. uh, And there's also a range of ethics that you might bring into that into that process, including, you know, the importance of having boundaries, of holding confidentiality in the conversations that you have with young people, but also informing them about what their options are so that they're able to achieve their goals. Derm, it's a multifaceted job and I am uh, just my head spinning a little bit after hearing all of that in the first place. But as Rochelle was saying earlier in the show, we, we had a period of time where youth being a youth worker was really popular it was seen as you know something that a lot of people were putting their hands up to do but we're not seeing potentially as many people taking that path anymore why do you think that is um there's probably a range of reasons for it one is that it often uh doesn't attract high salaries um so there's definitely not the benefit that you get uh, financially from this type of career, but there's great satisfaction that you that you do get. The hours can be uh, 
sort of, you know, not conducive to family life, uh, shall we say. Uh, for me, there's a lot of regional and rural travel involved. So I spend three or four days a week in the car, uh, travelling to various places in order to engage with both youth workers and with young people. So there are a range of reasons uh, for that. When we, you know, when we hear about when someone is either breaking the law or when we see young people are disengaged, and often the solution is, well, they need somewhere to go, right? Young people need somewhere to be able to feel safe and secure and connected. And then there's that idea of a youth drop-in centre or a youth worker, and we need to connect them. Is that just easier said than done? I mean, as a youth worker, it takes a long time, as you said, to build that trust to ensure that you're not breaking any of those boundaries that are needed. But people aren't going to come to you, Derm. I mean, you have to find them as well. And the old, I mean, I don't know any kind of young person that wants to hang out at a youth drop-in centre necessarily. Um, That's true. You do need to go there. And I'd probably bring the other panel members in at this point because one of the things that we're increasingly seeing is that if we don't have uh, a range of people with their lived experience being youth workers, uh, then young people are not necessarily going to be drawn to them. If you can't see it, you can't be it. So making sure that we have a diversity of workers who are there with their lived experience is really important. Carmel, you're also trained as a youth worker. Yes, I am. And quite unusual, actually, because um, I'm a CEO of an organisation and my story of being a youth worker came from the very story you, you and Derm have told, that my that my experience of growing up in a quite poor northern suburbs school where I didn't feel like I connected to anyone inspired me to be a youth worker. So the organisation has grown into that where we now have... Um, Lots of staff from over 60 cultural backgrounds scattered across Victoria whose, whose key role is to really engage with young people and make some connections because they need to feel safe. This is the other bit about crime prevention that um, if we're going to engage with young people and want to make some change in their life, they need to feel there's someone that they trust to do that and that's a really key role of what a youth worker does. Melissa Hardham, you work in community law with human rights. How big an issue is youth crime in Victoria at the moment? Can you paint us a picture of what this actual state of play is when it comes to things like youth crime? We've heard we need these youth workers, but what about the criminal aspect? Yeah, what we find, um, particularly with legal services in the western suburbs where we deliver a lot of our programs, is we really need to go to where the young people are already accessing services. So uh, to Carmel and Derm's point, you know, Uh, young people aren't necessarily going to come looking for a legal service or looking for support. We need to embed our services in the schools, in the hubs, in the services where young people are already going and interacting with youth workers and other supports. And through that, through that um, education and early intervention and prevention, um, we can see that Um, young people um, better understand their rights and responsibilities and then remain engaged in those pro-social and positive behaviours. Plenty of texts on this and we'll try and get through as many as we can. This says youth work is undervalued by managers who leave them out of management plans and meetings. That's from Jane, the wife of a youth worker, and that therefore youth workers are leaving in droves. We might actually put this to you, Ray. Ray Jackson, you're the General Manager of Community Services at YSAS. So YSAS is a youth support and advocacy service. Are youth workers leaving in droves because they're just not respected by managers, do you think? Um, I don't think so. I think um, it comes down to individual choices sometimes. But I do think that there is uh, a need 
um, and we're starting to see uh, a lot more interest in the youth worker space. So as an example, um, recent recruitment processes, you know, will we'll turn over from ads, you know, up to 50, 60 applicants um, for youth work roles. I think that's, a, if anything, an indication to, you know, uh, I guess um, the interest of, of uh, those out there who are wanting to aspire or are youth workers to to sort of move around a bit and get into the field. So, um, and then on the flip side, I guess, you know, at the same time, as I mentioned, individual choices, you know, there may be other reasons why um, youth workers are leaving the sector, whether that's um, further career development or whether it's um, exploring other opportunities in other youth-type support services and community. Ray, can I just make the comment that uh, one of the interesting factors with funding um, that we find certainly in community legal centres is the short-term nature of funding and young people um, who are building their careers and establishing their lives also need to have some sort of job security. I think in these types of industries, particularly in the community and youth services sectors, um, what we need to do is um, ensure that there is that long-term opportunity um, for people to develop a career, um, and that comes with sustainable long-term funding. Yeah, I, I think yeah, you're right. I think um, in terms of investment from government, from a funding perspective, I think um, the sustainability is key to, to addressing some of the issues that we're seeing now in the youth sector, um, particularly um, the crime rates, um, but I think um, historically there's been you know initiatives and pockets of funds that are sort of distributed out to community-based services um, that may only be two to three years, sometimes five, and sometimes to establish that type of initiative can take one to two years to actually see any real change. So I think um, in terms of long-term investment uh, funding-wise, there needs to be a bit more of a strategic approach to how that looks and a more of a coordinated um, cross-government sector response to how that happens. Here on The Conversation Hour, Rochelle Hunt and Daniel Miles are with you and in the studio, Derm Ryan, who's from the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, Melissa Hardham, CEO of West Justice, Carmel Guerra, for the Director and Chief Executive of the Office Centre for Multicultural Youth and the voice there of Ray Jackson, who you just heard, General Manager of Community Services at YSAS. We're looking at youth crime prevention and the role that youth workers in particular play. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Well, we're talking youth crime prevention today. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles is your co-host joining you from ABC Warnable. Daniel, lots of people texting in and asking the question around, well, where are the parents in these conversations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big smiles and nodding from all of our studio guests. Derm, I'll put that to you. How often do you get that? Well, where are the parents? What is their role here? Um, look, some of the parents are there, but the parents might also be experiencing a range of issues. We know that family violence is increasingly... Uh, an issue. Young people are exposed to trauma when they're in the middle of a family violence scenario where there are drugs and alcohol. Um, So there might be a program that you need to develop that uh, focuses on a number of things. So additionally, the parents might not be um, uh, able to be there all the time because they're busy working or they're they're doing the things just to keep a roof over the head uh, of those uh, children and young people. They might not have been supported Uh, early in their lives either we see a lot of intergenerational trauma uh, that's passed on um, and that creates a whole set of uh, you know complexities for community in that regard. That's right in terms of legal problems we often see that when a young person presents 
their parents might also be experiencing mortgage stress, tenancy stress, um, under pressure from the rising cost of living. And it's usually this perfect storm that creates a very um, stressed and um, challenged family life, which then leads to a young person feeling less engaged and less connected. And from my end, with lots of the multicultural families, it's really difficult to navigate your way in a new country where you're used to traditional parenting practices. So then you come to an Australia and you have young people who are learning to adapt. So that is also when you combine that with social economic pressures, it makes it difficult. There's already a text coming in saying you can't have this conversation without discussing ethnicity and also racism as well. How racist does this conversation become from the history that you have that people would like to either racially profile or stereotype when they think about youth crime? Rochelle, I think we could spend a whole program on this and I'd love to do that another another time. You Uh, can go into it as much as you want to today, but absolutely, let's do another show. um, I think it's mixed. I think that we need to acknowledge that racism has existed, always existed from my own parents' experience being Italian. When I went to school, I experienced what is racism, where you now think, what do you mean? You're Italian? You experience racism? Well, I was called a wog and dago and I threw my salami sandwiches in the rubbish bin, right? So here we are 40 years later and we have very different communities who look very visibly different. So I think as a community, we have to acknowledge that racism exists. I think the challenge is that a lot of the young people who who are involved in crime, and there is an over-representation, I think we need to put that fact on the table, of certain groups, but when when you start to look at where those groups are living, then you start to unpack they are living in some of the poorest communities in Melbourne. So if you constitute 60% of the population and you live in areas where there is high youth crime, of course young people are going to be involved. So I think it's not a simple question and there and there are two sides to that coin. And I would add to what Carmel's point there is about the over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, culturally, linguistically diverse young people, uh, young women. Increasingly, we're seeing those groups and young people at risk of -of out-of-home care or who have been living in out-of-home care. They are absolutely over-represented in our justice system um, and at risk of, of justice uh, so we need to be doing more to support those young people rather than over-policing them. That's right. And when you look at the cost of incarceration of a young person these days, um, particularly those in the children's jails, it's up to 5000 a day. So if we reinvested those funds into supporting this particular selection of over-represented groups, imagine what we could do. Mm. You're listening to The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Victoria where we're talking about youth crime and the role of youth workers. If you are one, if you've been in contact with one, how can they help and are they part of a solution to this issue? If you want to get involved, one three hundred triple two seven seven four. We've got a cast of experts here ready and willing to answer any of your curly questions. Uh, Daniel from Footscray has given us a call. Good morning, Daniel. What's your experience in the sector? Yeah, hi guys. Um, look, I've been doing the work for about 20 years now and unfortunately in the last 10 years I've watched the whole industry just fall apart due to they have, um, you need at least a certificate for and a trauma-informed practice to work in the industry now and when that happened we lost a lot of good mothers and fathers and people who didn't have qualifications but they had all the skill sets to do the job and now we've got a lot of young people with no real 
knowledge of what they're doing, but they've got a piece of paper that says they do. So how did you train, Daniel? I did a certificate four years ago, like 15 years ago, and then I did a diploma about 10 years ago. And I actually, I've got two jobs. I work um, as an animal therapist for my other job, and that's the polar opposite where <laughs> we, we cross every T, we dot every I. But in the industry, in the youth work, in uh, out-of-home care, there's a, the problem really is there's a lot of staff that work for multiple organisations and they circumvent the Privacy Act because companies can't cross-reference if a person's just finished a shift and moved to a next, going straight to another shift. But if you work for one organisation, you have to have at least an eight-hour gap. And so there's people turning up absolutely fried, starting another shift, and mm. no one's doing anything about it. And, Daniel, you've raised two points, and this is something I know, Dan. Adele, who couldn't join us today, who's a, a youth worker, a young woman who works uh, as a youth worker in Corriong, is working really hard with the local community there, especially with the LGBTIQ plus community, and is trying to get mm-hmm. their rainbow ball up and running. I asked her, I said, how did you get started in this work? And she said, oh, actually, I was working at the bakery, you know, which was a hmm. part of the outreach group, but then one thing yeah. led to another, and it was like peer to peer is how she became educated. But I also yeah. know that Catherine Ellis, who just stood down as the CEO of Youth Affairs Council was saying that there's a big call, Dern, to try and get at least youth working on the free TAFE list or t- uh, just to find a way to make it more accessible but also to be more respected. Yeah, absolutely, because it is a profession and we do need to be uh, ensuring that it is, like if it's put onto the free TAFE system, that it then is accessible in regional and rural areas. So often what happens is it all the diploma or the cert form will be put on free TAFE, but it's only offered in Melbourne or it's only offered online. And we're missing out on being able to provide those courses to uh, young people, particularly peer uh, young people. That's where we're seeing an increasing number of of supports and development is by having peer workers come in, particularly in the mental health area, um, but also other areas. And we do need to see greater investment by government in not just the beginning of those free TAFE courses, but then those pathways to continue in the industry to further develop your skills and your profession. And to put Daniel's question to our panel of experts, are we seeing a change in the face of youth workers that are coming through, of those who had practical experience, like may have worked in a bakery and found a passion for this, or may have been a parent and come into this situation, to school leavers who have gone straight to uni and don't have that lived experience? Is there a change in the face of youth Mm. workers out there? Um, Yeah, I think there is. And and I think going back to um, Darren's point uh, around lived experience, I think that combined with um, life experience as well for some. Um, You know, not only, not all young people sort of that are wanting to get into this field have a lot of that. Um, And I think um, a bit more in that space would be be nice, but also on the flip side of that, um, you know, going back to building trust, rapport, being relatable, looking at engagement strategies, there's, there's younger ones out there that may not necessarily have a lot of that, that still can provide a good level of support because they understand on an individual needs basis what young people are are going through. In just a moment, we want to go through some of the programs that are actually working and that could have some more funding because there's all text here as well saying, well, what are some of the practical ideas that could be used for action? And quite often the community has the solution. You just need the funding and need the platform to be able to talk about it. Fiona's in Williamstown North. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning. Yes. What did now you want to my, say? My, 
Yeah, my experience has been as a, a TAFE educator and it was involving um, young people that were diverted from the criminal justice system into a youth diversion program via education. And my experience it sort of bounces on from what Daniel said, which was that we had a lot of dealings with um, youth um, edu- um, support workers who... I think probably didn't have adequate training possibly um, through the justice system and would um, turn up while the young people were in their education program, interrupt the program, take them out of class to talk about court um, time that they had to appear before. And I would request many times that this was disrupting class yeah. and equally sometimes they return... It doesn't seem like the right time to be having those conversations. No, no. And it, and I am a person who believes in the diversion program because I did see some success, but equally I saw sometimes some bravado on the part of the young person when they returned and after interrupting the class saying, I've got a court case and da-di-da. So what I guess I was saying is that I felt that Diversion through education was good, but I think that the naivety of the um, youth worker, you know, I had to talk to a number of them to say, you need to have a meeting outside the education Mm. time. And, you know, I'm sure you work with the families and support them in education, but they were often attending... Um, because it's very easy to access the tape, you just walk in and quite... Yeah, um, it doesn't seem like the right mm-hmm. time uh, at all to be holding those conversations. Uh, Melissa Hardham, I'd like to put Fiona's question to you because I believe you've got a, a program that's taking lawyers into the school system and actually, you know, imparting some of that advice about the court systems, about people's rights. Is school the appropriate time to be giving those life lessons or should we be looking outside of that? Daniel, I guess there's two parts to that. First, in in terms of the comments of the caller, I would suggest that integrated services are really important here. You know, I'm sitting um, with a panel of four people that I work, that our organisations work together on a daily basis, and I think knowing what services are being provided, the best time to deliver those services and make sure that the, the trust that's been developed with that young person is being handed over to the right organisation at the right time is really critical In terms of where to deliver those services, what we certainly find with our school lawyer program is that by having lawyers in the schools where kids are there every day, um, providing legal education on rights and responsibilities across a a whole raft of areas, not just criminal law, um, but also laws in relation to social media, employment, debts, fines, family violence and the like is um, really important to empower young people and give them the knowledge and the awareness of what their rights and responsibilities are navigating the world in which they live Mm. and then where things do go wrong or issues do become apparent then we provide that individual service from you know the the early advice stages right through to the completion of the legal matter the fact though when we talk about what works you know what actions need to be put into place when you hear that that young person is in an education program they're in a diversion program education is key it was something that was being discussed on am this morning you have got offenders this is something that's working in ipswich where they have a big issue with youth crime you've got young people that were serial offenders and that were pr- really problematic offenders but you hook them up with education and over 
over time you do see change and you see their lives turn around and this may be the first time in their family that they've seen that change how important is somehow i mean and how hard is it i mean it's easy to say get them into education but i mean that would obviously take years sometimes to get someone to tafe for example yeah, I think just going back to Melissa's point as well of having programs within schools, I think that's a, a really important piece. Um, the disengagement rate from schools at the moment is really, really high for a number of reasons. But I think there's also a number of those that um, are engaging in these types of high-risk taking behaviours where they're coming into contact with the criminal justice system, but they're still engaged in schools. And part of the youth support service program that we run at YSAS and a number of other providers in the northwest is um, we're starting to see a developing need or an emerging trend in schools, um, particularly with um, in the wellbeing space where they're identifying lots more young people who are um, sort of, I guess, relevant to the supports that we provide in terms of crime prevention. But we're also looking at um, innovative ways of embedding ourselves in schools. So going back to the caller's point, the timing of having appointments can be those that, you know, if there's a youth worker in schools that are accessible there, um, whether it be in recess or lunchtime or before or after schools, then those are opportunities for the one the school to support that program, but having youth workers sort of readily accessible for young people um, and taking the work to where it's needed um, and without disrupting the, the sort of education curriculum in schools. And Ray Jackson, one of the programs that is running at the moment through YSAS is the Embedded Outreach Program. And this is one I understand had a little bit of success. Can you explain to us, the way I've been pitched to this story is you've got cops in plain clothes heading out with youth workers and the youth workers are trying to lead a new approach. Um, the, the police are wearing... Uh, casual clothes. Um, it's tell me, it's not one of those situations where police are walking up and saying, "Hello, fellow children. I, I am hats, also here to help caps you." Caps on backwards. They're backwards caps and they skateboard <laughs> under their arms. Is that what it looks like, or how how does this program work? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, th- I think it's a, a really valuable program. And it's been going for a number of years now. It's, it's got a bit of a, an evidence base behind it through some research um, conducted by Swinburne University uh, that demonstrates the value of um, you know youth worker alongside um, police members in the, in the front line of things, um, more so in the proactive policing units. But I think So they're literally out in the car and out and about yeah, working with them on the ground? Yeah, pretty much. And I, and I think um, the value of that relationship um, has been demonstrated over, over time that, um, you know, we're starting to sort of see shifts in behaviours of, of some of the, the police members that work alongside youth workers um, in terms of how they may look at a, a scenario or a situation that's um, got a bit of crisis about it and uh, the initial sort of contact. Obviously, police do what they got to do in terms of de-escalating and, and making sure... Yeah, but sure it's not their role to, to be youth workers, no, no. is it? And to connect with the youth. And in particular, Carmel, when you are maybe dealing with someone who is relatively new to the country, who may have a completely different idea and image of what law enforcement looks like in the country that they've come from, how important is it to have a youth worker be there and to be the first port of call and maybe even to have police not in uniforms? I know when we spoke to Vinnie, who was the school lawyer, you know, he certainly doesn't dress like a lawyer, even if there's not a, a way a lawyer should dress. But he's also talking about when police visit schools, like take your guns out. Like you don't need to carry a gun when you're in a school so that that threat disappears. Look, it's a really good question because I think there is this notion, which I think's driven from the public. I know when I meet with family and they find out you're a youth worker and say, really, we should have cops at school because that's going to divert them from crime. Well... 
really, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's the best way to spend resources and that really we need to think about ways in which we keep police to law and order and the justice system and that youth workers are about diversion. I think there's a merging of the two at the moment. So, And you I don't th- think it's a good idea? No, I don't think it's a good idea because I think it confuses young people too. That's, that's our feedback. I think that it's really clear that you want police to be in the community engaging with young people so they understand what police do. Because in a lot of countries, police have been the perpetrators of violence against their family members. So we're also doing a lot of re- re-education of saying, in Australia, it's really different. Police are on your side. They're there to protect you if you if things happen. So I think confusing that can be a bit difficult. So I, th- I, don't, I find that interesting, though, because then the outreach program has, looks to be successful. And then there, there may be racial profiling that comes with some yeah. police officers officers as well looking at having a youth worker bring a different perspective i would think works i I think i think so um and i I do take your point and i think it's um in this time i think when we're looking at escalating sort of rates around crime and the comments that made earlier around um i guess from a cultural perspective the numbers are high in particular um, population groups here and I probably could say in the Pacific Island sort of culture and the, and the African sort of space and probably more in the indigenous sort of space as well there's there's those numbers that are, are really high and I think when you when you start to look at that initial point of contact obviously we, we've got to understand once we engage with young people what's driving or enabling these types of behaviours but that early engagement with police alongside a youth worker where we can start to change the narrative a bit around um, from a cultural perspective how does this actually look and when we're starting to look at you know police having a, a bit more of a different lens not always but we're not trained uh, asking them to change the world or anything like that, but just take a, a different type of approach when you see those kind of situations. Is diversity within the police force a big part of that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think we saw in the weekend some new graduates who are from diverse cultures. I think it's really important so that police need to start to look like the community that they're servicing. And the, and the other point I wanted to make was also around early intervention, mm. which I think we're all talking about, that... We know young people are dropping out of school, so what are we doing to keep them at school? And post the COVID pandemic, the numbers are skyrocketing. Young people are dropping out of school, so therefore they don't have a sense of belonging. Education is really important. Work is really important. And we need to invest in those factors because that's what will keep young people out of crime. How do you get someone back into school? If they drop out of school, how hard is it to get them back into the education system? it can be really tricky because the school is the institution that you felt like didn't belong and didn't speak to you. And if you've been a young person who's been in detention, locked up, it's really difficult to feel like you connect back because you've lost all those connections with young people that you may consider to be not connected with crime. So finding ways to do that, like our TAFE teacher said, is really important. So you can start to see why we started today's program by talking about youth crime prevention and how mm. complicated it is and all of the aspects that come into it. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Michelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warnable. We're talking youth crime prevention and what helps, in particular, what role do youth workers play? A panel of guests with you in the studio, Derm Ryan, the acting CEO of the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, Melissa Hardham, the CEO of West Justice, Carmel Guerra, who's the Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Centre for Multicultural Youth, and Ray Jackson, who's the General Manager of Community Services in Melbourne's West, who's a part of YSAS. 
when we talk about what works, youth crime prevention, okay, and yes, we know that early intervention, these are all big words and terms that we hear time and time and time again. So what's working? What can we do more of? And how do we ensure that those programs are funded? We need to invest more into community-based programs that are evidence-based and are showing results. So uh, Ray spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that the program is working with Swinburne, developing that evidence model. This is something that Yakvik has been championing for a number of years, and we commissioned Deloitte Access Economics to uh, conduct a study on the social return of investments made into youth work. And broadly, without going through the details of the model, because that will bore everybody, <laughs> the, the, the return on investment showed for every dollar you spend on youth work, you get a $2.62 return in economic and social return into the community. Now, that is the sort of evidence that governments need to make these sorts of decisions. And over time, if we increase that investment into youth and community work, we will see a reduction in um, uh, people needing the justice Mm. system. So some of the programs that we were looking at that were included in the model were showing between a 24 and 40% reduction in recidivism rates. Now, that's real evidence that we need to be using to say to government, these programs work. So what sort of programs are they? What do they do? They work with young people around uh, engaging them in in community. They work around... So might be employment, education... Employment, education and community connection. So a lot of the time it's about understanding what's the community that that young person wants to connect with and how do we do that? How do we support them to be able to do that? And And what we're trying to measure there, um, obviously, is the um, reduction in those um, engagement with crisis services. So the family violence services, the drug and alcohol services, um, hospital admissions, homelessness, um, crisis housing. Um, there's a you know, state government initiative, the Early Intervention Investment Framework, um, which has been embedded into the, into the budget process, uh, first state, I think, in the country to do so. And we're working closely with government to better understand that as a community service. Um, the more that we can evidence the human benefit, which gets us up in the morning, um, the better. But also we need to be able to present a really compelling case to government that by reinvesting that money from incarceration, from you know, the justice system and, and, and reinvesting it into those early intervention and prevention opportunities is the best way forward in terms of being able to make a compelling case to government and society. And I'm not a math magician, but spending $1 and getting $2.66 back is benefit in any kind of language. Why is this sort of funding not sexy enough, potentially, for the government to be opening the wallet, writing the checks, spending big bucks in this sphere, if we've got the maths down saying it works? Um, My understanding is from our many conversations with government that it's really hard to get that evidence. It's been very hard to get the kind of evaluation rigour we're looking for and we have two examples here that demonstrate that because you don't see the success of, of early intervention or crime prevention to four or five years later so you need to invest early, monitor follow the young people to see that it's made a difference. We all know that anecdotally through our work but rightly so, government needs evidence but but it needs to be funded. Yeah and just um, going uh, in addition to those points I think um there's a, I think there's a little bit of a gap as well in terms of how the 
the evidence-based stuff is, is captured in the translation from what happens in community through reporting mechanisms or, or how that narrative is then taken to the decision-making table around funding and understanding some of the dynamics. So the evidence can tell you one part of that, but the reality of, of all other bits and pieces that support that evidence base is, is, is a little bit missing, I think, and depending on how much you know, evidence they want or or sort of the translation of what's actually out there. And I give an example of, um, we've spoken about it, complex needs now. So there's really a high level of complex needs um, coming through with these young people that we're seeing in our YSAS programs that kind of touch multiple levels. Yeah. So you've got um, mental health as an example that's underpinned some of this high-risk-taking behaviours you've got. So um, the justice side of things, the health side of things, the education system and a collaborative kind of a, a response where you look at those sort of three areas in the government, um, how those can sort of be better and smarter about utilising evidence bases in each of those areas, but also putting together uh, a bit of a funding kind of package that sort of meets the needs mm -hmm. that we're seeing. So I think a little bit more of that is, is probably needed. Good morning, Anne. Hello. How are you? Very well. What would you like to say, Anne? Well, basically I've been listening to the conversation this morning and I am astounded that nobody has brought forward the idea that we follow Scandinavian countries and treat the entire family where it's possible. Because the family is where most of the problem starts in the first place. And here we are, nobody who's even been through our education system to become a youth worker or somebody related to it has mentioned any sort of um, education in that regard. Mm. And and the amount of times we have conversations like this in particular around youth justice and when we look at rehabilitation the amount of times that Scandinavia comes up oh. as the perfect example I don't know what they're doing Always. in that country or what is in the water Doesn't there. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Even their justice system so if you are incarcerated depending on the crime you can actually leave prison and go and work in the community, have a real job and be a part of the community and that has just been hugely successful. What Anne was saying there is how do we look after the entire family? How, uh, I mean, that's a big part of it, isn't it? Because this is often generational. Look, it is. And we do a lot of work through some state government funding um, for a program called the Community Su Support Group, which works with South Sudanese families. We know there is a very high overrepresentation. So that model we're trialling, it's um, given us some evidence over three years where we've done exactly right. So I agree with the, the caller. We go in and support the mother with her children. We then go in and support the young person to actually stay at school if they're in contact with the justice system. what does system. that look like? What, what does it look like on a daily basis? Like, yeah. yeah. What, what it looks like is that we have a team of trained bicultural workers who speak to the language, have got training. They then partner with other organisations. So if they need drug and alcohol, we will help the young person broker to that visit. We will support the mother in the school situation. So it means that you're following the family as they need you. So, that, so you're kind of embedding staff in that family and actually supporting them to find their way. Do they often, do they always want help? Do the parents think sometimes, oh, get out of my house? Yeah, I think I think what we're seeing, um, sometimes there's barriers um, to engaging with families. I think there's, um, there's some stigma surrounding, you know, I'm not doing a great job as a parent, as an example, and how some of that stuff can come into the, to the mix of understanding what the needs are. But I think there's, 
there needs to be more work done in that family space, particularly where there's intergenerational trauma mm. and mm. things like family violence and alcohol and substance abuse um, has been sort of embedded there. Um, I think getting into that space is key and going back to youth workers can play a, a key role in understanding the, the young person's needs, but some of those needs may be also extended to the family. So how we understand that more and, and um, through programs like CSG and others um, to, to start to address some of the needs of the families because it's, it's an interesting dynamic. That's right. And sometimes it's because families aren't aware of the support and assistance that's available. We find that with... Uh, legal support, that often people don't understand that they do have a legal problem or where to go to to access that help. And an example of that might be a fine or a debt um, or a scam. And, you know, for that family to sort of navigate a system, particularly if they've got other barriers, can be really complex. So going to where the families are already engaged and to Anne's point, how do you support the family as a whole? We go to places like the settlement services. We go to places where the families are already accessing um, other health services um, such as IPC Health um, and then we are able to provide a more wraparound support for not just the individual but for the family as a whole. There's a text message here and it's just three words, right? And I could not agree more. And maybe it's showing my age, but it just says tech high schools. Now, that sounds funny, right? Because, I, I mean, I grew up in an area where I was, when you, I'd share the bus with the tech boys and it was always super scary, right? Depending on where you'd sit on the bus. But the, the difference tech schools when you were disengaged when you didn't connect with the inverted commas traditional school system there was an alternative and it was respected and you walked out with a job and skills i honestly believe that when we shut down tech schools we shut out an entire group of people that don't fit into our current schooling system Absolutely. And we need to be looking at what does it mean to develop a tech school now? What are the what are the tech trades of the future? And how can we work with young people? But we keep coming back to the point around engagement. What is it that that young person is actually interested in? And who's there to support them being able to achieve those goals? And I guess one of the barriers in engagement and support does come when we're speaking to such a multicultural and broad audience. And Carmel Guerra, I know the group that you work with provides specialist knowledge and support for young people from migrant and refugee backgrounds. We do hear race as a big part of this when it's discussed in the media as well, mm. the, the role that race plays. How do we find those specialist supports to help migrant communities, to help culturally and linguistically diverse mm. communities to ensure that they're getting the same level of engagement, if not more, than some of our other traditional cohorts are having? Yeah. Um, we need to do a couple of things. One is we need to ensure that all the services that we have, and West Justice is a great example where its local residents represent your client group because they've developed their service in a way where you can reach out. So CMY does that with a lot of organisations to open their doors. The second thing is we need to look at people who experience racism. At the moment, the young people and families tell us that when they complain, it doesn't get heard. So we have an issue, whether it's police. And who do you complain to? 
Human Rights Commission, you um, you may complain to Vicpol itself, you might complain to Telstra, you might complain that you think you're not getting a job. Uh, we have young people, really savvy young people, highly skilled, who put into applications and they change their name and their address. Mm. Barry from Brighton versus Sam from, you know, somewhere else and they will get an interview or get a second chance if they know they've gone to a different region. So I think we've got a bit of work to do with the systems around and but I also think we've got some work to do in getting young people and their families to feel like they feel connected and welcome. I think that's at the heart of what's happened. And also, uh, I keep making this point about rights and responsibilities, but what we found with the Youth Employment Justice Program was, you know, it's important for young people to receive an education and create a pathway into employment. But if they're going into a place where they don't feel safe or um, they're um, being paid below the minimum wage or there's an issue with their workplace conditions, it can be a really polarising experience for them and it can lead them to feel negative about their entry into the workforce. So empowering young people, we suggest at the tech schools, if they um, are uh, reinvented um, or through any educational system with young people so that when they are um, employed in their first job, they're aware of their rights and responsibilities. They're empowered to negotiate mm. those issues in the workplace to ensure that they get what they need. And it's gone off on Texas says you're just so right. The current secondary education system just doesn't fit the need of most students. And we are all nodding there. And when we look at young people dropping out of school, and then you still want to find your community, right? You still want to find your group. And it just might be that that group that you're hanging out with probably isn't the best group for you to be hanging out with, but that need to feel connected. And we don't want to blame school here but we do have just a very siloed vision of what education looks like is that an issue uh, I think so and I, and I think it goes back to creating pathways and showing you know uh, the way to to opportunities and going back to what Dem's talking about before understanding you know what what the goals and aspirations of, of a young person and then as you, we've all been through you know you grapple with decisions do I want to be this and what do I need to? What courses do I need to sort of engage with to be able to go that down that path? And then you get halfway down, there and you change. And sometimes that can contribute to to the um, to the engagement side of things. But no doubt, education is an important thing. And I think we need more pathways um, to show young people, particularly from uh, culturally and linguistic diverse communities, how that should look and where to go. That's Ray Jackson, who's the General Manager of Community Services in Melbourne's West, is a part of YSAS. Ray, thank you so much for all of your time and your insights today. Also to Derm Ryan, who's the Acting CEO of the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria. This is, I guess, you guys are the peak body, the leading advocates for young people in the youth sector. Just final words, Derm, are you confident that young people are getting the support that they need? I'm confident in young people, but I do think there needs to be much more investment uh, for young people to be able to achieve, both by government but also by business as well. There's partnership opportunities there uh, which could deliver better uh, frameworks and deliver more for young people. Melissa Hardham is the CEO of West Justice, which is a human rights and community legal centre in the western suburbs of Melbourne. As always, thank you so much for all of your insights today and to the work that your team does as well. And you've got multiple facets to the work that you do there. And people can reach out to you because often families, individuals don't know what to do and where to go. So West Justice is always a good place to start.
Thanks. Carmel Guerra, Director and Chief Executive Officer for the Centre of Multicultural Youth. Carmel, we're going to get you back into the studio, I reckon, in a couple of weeks' time and we'll look at where the racism narrative comes from when we talk about youth crime and how we can specifically address that. But thank you so much for That'd the work great. that thank you do. Thank you, Michelle. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.